Hello again and welcome to the Thanksgiving 2016 edition of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as always, with the Thanksgiving episode, we like to bring you something special. We like to do something nice. And as always, to give back to the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And before we get into today's episode with me, Mike Masters, I'd like to take a walk down memory lane and relive some classic moments from the Thanksgiving night tradition, the WWF Survivor Series, with a few classic moments as told to us by both Mo from Men on a Mission and the gobbly gooker himself, Hector Guerrero. So before we get into today's episode, please strap in for a few minutes here and listen to some classic stories from two classic episodes of the two-man power trip of wrestling. We're not advertised to be on the pay-per-view, that we were just there. And then we're just sitting there in the locker room, and somebody says, come to us and say, hey guys, y'all need to go to makeup. And we're like, go to makeup? What the hell are you talking about? It was like, they was like, go to makeup. So we go to makeup, and the first thing that we do, they say, sit down in the chair, and they start painting us up. And we're like, what is this about? And they're like, well, uh, you two guys with Oscar, and the bushwhackers are going to be the four doors tonight. And <laughs> it, 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 was just, it was so stupid, man. We were like, are you kidding me? Really? I mean, I mean so we thought like, man, this has got to be a rib, right? Really? You, you all, we just got here, you clowning us already? You know, <laughs> literally clowning us, right? Vince is like, guys, you could do it. Just We just want you to have fun. We don't... It's not. It's not supposed to be a, uh, 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 a serious thing, you know. Find the funniest ways to beat each other, you know. Sniff on a banana peel, throw the, the pail of confetti, use a scooter. I mean, they pretty much said, "Mo, we want you somewhere during the match to circle the ring with the scooter." And I'm thinking, "Are you kidding me?" And I'm, here I am in the ring, circling the ring with a scooter, and the scooter's broke. The wheel's going one way. I'm trying to go the other way. It was it was so stupid, man. But yet it was so entertaining. When you look back at it afterwards, it's like that is the funniest, dumbest shit you ever seen in your life. But but it worked, you know. It worked. Things are really heating up here at the Survivor Series, and I gotta tell you, these great fans here in Hartford, Connecticut, are red hot too. But this egg is gonna hatch here tonight. As a matter of fact, hold on. I, I can hear it starting to creak and crack right now. Oh, oh there it is! What, what is it? What, what in a world? Oh my god! What? What in the world is this? I don't know. You got a pair of legs like my mother-in-law, pal. Look at the feet on this thing. I can't believe what in God's name is this. Holy What What is with the gobbledy? The gobbledy goop. Ha! Don't tell me you're the gobbledy gooker. You've got to be kidding me. And, I, and, then, and then they said, Hector Guerrero. I go, yes. 
He says, don't hang up. This is uh, Vince would like to talk to you. <laughs> so I go, who? <laughs> Vince McMahon would like to talk to you. So I talked to Vince. We, he gave me the whole idea that they want to do uh, something like the San Diego chicken and crack it out of an egg at Survivor Series and call it egg-siding, you know, like E-G-G, egg-siding. Interesting because my brother, Eddie, used to, used to call him Egg because he was Eddie Gory Guerrero, so Egg, so interesting. But going back to the gobbledygooker, but I remember that the town was very unforgiving, too. As soon as I cracked out of that egg, they were booing, man. I mean, booing. Now, the kids were yelling. I could hear some of the kids yelling, but the boos were more than the kids. So it was, uh, it was it's immediately, you know, and then Gene was trying to, you know, work it up. As a matter of fact, when I got down and he put down the mic, after we had a little lingo we did, I said to him, Gene, is he taking it? He says, well, we said, Hector, we got to get it over. Let's get it over. He just, we well, made our way to the ring and he, you know, he tried to follow me up and he, he, he fell in the ropes and he tried to do the things that I was trying to do and he couldn't do them, you know, and this and that. And he did that, you know, to try to get it over. Well, the next day he was black and blue, I heard. Yeah, that's that's how good Gene, Gene you know, mean Gene was. He's, He's a he's a he's a player, man. A great guy. Anyway, but uh, they looked at it in a, as a frown. This is probably you know what? If I would have known that that's the type of crowd that was in Hartford, Connecticut, I would have I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have done it. I didn't know his I didn't know his territory. Boy, I walked into the dressing room and I'm looking. He's looking at me. He's not look, he's not happy to look at me. <laughs> he was he was not happy. And he's looking at me. He's giving me very dirty looks. And I'm going, oh my god. I wonder if he knows. And uh, I was going to say something about it, but then he walked away. Here comes Gorilla Monsoon. Walks into the door and he looks at me. You couldn't see, right? And I go, you think? He says, well, we figured it out. <laughs> What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh my God, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Wooga Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there, this is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind a show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick shit out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling.
throw to throw. Nailed Masters, a drop kick and he missed it. Masters saw it coming, reflex action. Grabbed the rope, pulled himself out of range. And that was a good idea. Uh, the elevation, watch out, he's going for the full Nelson. A big apple, full Nelson, grinding down on it. Hacksaw's in trouble. But the only help he can get is if he can get to the ropes. He's saying yes. I submit. The man is great upper body strength. Now he doesn't want to break the hold. He's turning away from the referee. Just to say, I don't see you telling me to break it. And he's working on Sawyer. He's trying to hurt. Well, Buddy Rose might look at that. It's one of the qualities he needs in the men that join his army. Sandy Barr forcing him to, trying to force him to break the hold. Hacksaw Sawyer caught in that powerful full Nelson. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at ProWrestlingTees.com. Head on over to ProWrestlingTees.com and this week save 20% off your order. And whether you're getting a two-man power trip of wrestling shirt or a shirt from one of our good friends like Kevin Thorne, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Tito Santana, Coco Beware, or Magnum TA, They've got so many choices to choose from, but get on over there this week and save 20% off your full order every single day leading up to the weekend. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my partner, the one and only primetime John Paz. And John will join us in a minute just to give us the two-man power trip of wrestling business. But I'm so incredibly excited to be joined by Mean Mike Masters today, a.k.a. Rocky Jones. And Mean Mike Masters might not be a name that jumps off the top of your head, but when you hear his story, you're going to want to know why you've never heard as much about Mean Mike Masters as you should, because this is a guy who has wrestled all over the world and wrestled some of the biggest names of all time and has such an incredible and unique backstory of how he got into professional wrestling and as you hear him talk and you hear his passion, you can still know that he's still getting at it every so often. Wrestling in New Jersey just wrestled for ECWA in New Jersey this past weekend and has another match coming up in December for ECWA. But as Rocky Jones or as Rock, uh, Mike, me and Mike Masters, Rocky has made a career out of working with some of the best names and some names that are very familiar to the two-man power trip of wrestling like Larry Zabisco or Tito Santana or even a guy like Coco Beware when he was under his first incarnation of Sweet Brown Sugar in Memphis. He's a guy, actually, you know, you can even go as deep as to find that he wrestled Robert Fuller. So the connection to the show is there, and getting to know Rocky leading up to the interview was such a joy for me, and to really pick his brain prior to actually getting on to, you know, doing the, quote, you know, Barbara Walter-style interview, just getting to talk to him was such a highlight for me, and the connection that we had off-air was just as cool as the stories that he tells on the show and he was, of course, mentored by Bruno San Martino. You're going to hear all about that. He wrestled Hulk Hogan. While Hulk Hogan was coming up, he wrestled Mil Mascaris in a hair versus mask match, which is unbelievable. And it's on YouTube. Go check that out. 
But we also dive deep into the territory of Hawaii with the Maivias, which isn't really talked about. And he gave some great insight into all the places that he's been. And I really hope that everybody enjoys this interview. And you go and look him up on Facebook as Rocky Jones. But when you look him up on YouTube, look him up as Mean Mike Masters and see some of the feats of strength that he performed in Portland as part of Buddy Rose's army. He crushes an apple with his bare hands. He does some powerlifting exercises. And he's just, he's an absolutely phenomenal guy. And I'm so happy that I was able to get to meet him. I was happy that we were able to interview him. And as our gift to you on Thanksgiving, we are giving you this Mean Mike Masters interview, this podcast with Rocky Jones, whatever you want to call him. It's a great interview. And we hope you stay tuned for it. And we want to thank you all for all your patronage this year as we move forward to the two-year anniversary in early January. And my voice is still killing me. If you heard us from the last episode, it's still killing me. But I just want to say happy Thanksgiving. And John, hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to Mean Mike Masters, a.k.a. Rocky Jones. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for past legendary episodes featuring the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Bruno San Martino, Jesse the Body Ventura, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, WWE Lead Attorney. Jerry McDivitt, the phenomenal AJ Styles, the Demon Kane, Dean Ambrose, and so many more. Also, wire on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Also, while you're surfing the web, go to wrestlinginc.com. Yes, that is wrestlinginc.com, your number one news source for professional wrestling and sports entertainment. Also, please check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com for your t-shirt needs. Featuring stores like our own store at the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling, Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Paul Orndorff, Kevin Thorne, and Buff Bagwell. Also, for you Android users out there, check us out on Player FM. And now... Without any further ado, a former NWA America's heavyweight champion, he is a forgotten legend who has wrestled all of wrestling's biggest names. He is a protege of Bruno Sammartino. He is Mike Masters, a.k.a. Rocky Jones. Please enjoy. who you might remember him as Mean Mike Masters. Uh, you might know him 
as Rocky Jones. But when I go back and I look at the career of Rocky Jones, I see a lot of things that stand out to me, and that are the opponents. And it is a two-man power trip of wrestling, who's who, and it is with that being said, I would love to welcome in at this time Rocky Jones. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, guys, great to be here. Well, Rocky, I mean, like I said, it's a who's who when we look at your career and we see the guys that we've interviewed. You think of a Nikolai Volkov, a Tito Santana, uh, Stan Hansen, uh, my gosh, I mean, uh, Robert Fuller, you know, even a Jerry Jarrett in there. You've been all over the world. You've wrestled in all the big territories. You've wrestled the top guys in the industry. And going back and looking at some of the names, it's honestly, it's one of the most impressive resumes I think John and I have ever come across, and it was so much fun to go and look at your career. But looking back and seeing some of those names, do you take a step back and think about your career and say, wow, I really did accomplish a lot when I got into the business of professional wrestling? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of what, I, what I've done. Uh, you know, sometimes I wish breaks would have gone a different way. I think I could have done a lot more. Uh, but, you know, I was kind of a, I was kind of a strange guy in a way that I didn't like to stay in, in a territory. Back then we worked in territories, not like it is today. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was, I just got bored or, you know, I wanted to try something different, but I would never stay in a territory very long. And by doing that, that usually wound, wound up to my detriment because obviously if they're going to give you a strong push, they're going to want you to stay around for a while. And, uh, you know, that kind of wasn't my M.O. I would stay in a territory for, you know, four or five, maybe six months, and then kind of move on to, to the next one. Uh, usually guys that got – I mean, and I did get some really nice pushes in some of the territories I worked in. But, you know, usually to, to get a real big push, you know, they wanted a commitment where you were going to be there for, you know, a couple of years, actually. And uh, that just wasn't um, – that kind of wasn't my, my thing back then. Well, you take you know you take it all the way back to the beginning, and we look at you know the early footage of you. You see that your 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 size and your you know your pure you know the bodybuilder look, and obviously you know still to this day you're very involved in fitness and really keeping yourself in shape. But back then there weren't a lot of guys that looked like you, and I don't know if it was just that awesome mustache, but there weren't a lot of guys <laughs> that looked like you <laughs> back in the uh, the late '70s and early '80s. Uh, and at a time where it was starting to really kind of explode with wrestling and that look being what, you know, the, the promoters wanted and the, the marketing machine ended up wanting, when you got into the business, was it something that your, your size and your dedication to, you know, bodybuilding or weightlifting, did that help you get into the business? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, I mean, that really um, kind of separated me from the other young guys that were trying to get it. I mean, you know, back then it was so much different. Uh, it was very rare for somebody that was, you know, a young kid basically trying to break into the business. It wasn't very, it wasn't easy to do, you know, not that it's easy today, but now they have, you know, these developmental leagues and all this stuff. They didn't have any of that stuff back in the day. So, you know, I mean, a lot of times guys that were breaking into business might've been second or third generation wrestlers, uh, or had some relative that was in the business, you know, so it was pretty hard to, to break in with basically no connections. And uh, so I know that that definitely made a difference because of, you know, I, I look like an athlete. 
Uh, and I mean, I was an athlete. I wrestled in high school. I played football in high school and college. And, um, you know, so I was always really athletic and, uh, you know, I, I loved lifting weights and, uh, you know, so I just sort of lifted, I guess, when I was about 14 years old. And by the time I was 20, 21 years old, I was up to 240 pounds. And, and the, the thing that I'm most proud of, and I could take any tester is out there. I never used any anabolic steroids to do that. I mean, it took me 10 years of hard training, never missing a, a workout no matter if I had a fever or I was sick or I was tired or whatever the case may be, I never missed a workout, but I never took any anabolic steroids or any of that crap. Never did that. Everything I did was from just pure hard work. And I'm very proud of that fact. Um, you know, but yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely, uh, a, a deciding factor of being able to get work. Uh, cause you know, I looked apart. And what was it about being natural and not having to take the easy way out to build your body that you really stuck to that? Because obviously it was, the e- you know, it was the easy way. It still is the easy way if you want to get big yeah. quick, you want to have a certain size to you. What was it that made you stay away from that and keep going the natural route? Well, I'll tell you the truth. You know, it's funny because uh, we used to train. We had a group of us. It was, you know, all my good friends, my brother, my cousin. and uh, We used to train together in this little private key club and somebody brought in a copy of the PDR. That's the uh, physician's desk graph. So, you know, we were always curious about steroids and stuff like that. So we would look it up and make every single steroid that we read all had similar side effects. Um, you know, some of the minor side effects would be, you know, severe acne, you lose your hair. Uh, and then it got into more severe things such as, uh, you know, high cholesterol, heart disease, liver disease, and and honestly, I mean, at 19 years old, that didn't really phase me all that much, but to be honest with you, what really did phase me was one of the things that I saw, and it was pretty much throughout all the different steroids, was it, it could cause impotence. So I was like, hmm, I'm 19 years old, and, and you know, what am I going to do, stand there if I'm with a girl and flex for her? <laughs> you know, so I was like, you know what, this is not for me. <laughs> And so that was one of the reasons. And another reason was, I mean, I guess I had a big ego, and I I wanted to know, like, I had bench pressed 460 pounds. I had done a full squat with 600 pounds, and uh, that was at a body weight of between 235 and 240, and not with wearing all these crazy equipment and gear that they have today. But um, I don't think my ego would have been able to to take it that if I was benching, say, 450 pounds while I was on a cycle, and then when I went off the cycle, I'd be, you know, busted my butt to try to do a 350, I don't think my ego would have been able to handle that. So I want to know that no matter what day it was, what the circumstances were, you know, I was going to be able to do, you know, my max or close to my max lifts. So that was another uh, deciding factor for me not to get involved with that. Oh, it's a smart move. And, yeah, that uh, that one side effect definitely, uh, I think that would take, uh, kind of make you scratch your head about the amount of guys that did end up uh, using the yeah. enhancers. Because <laughs> yeah. that's a, that's yeah. quite a killer. Not saying it's uh you know ten out of ten, but even yeah. eight out of ten, that's uh <laughs> that's a pretty big yeah. deal. Well, to tell you the truth, I mean I've been around it all my life, and most of the guys that I know that were heavy users, as they got older, they had to actually stay on it because they had such low testosterone levels that the only way to maintain a normal level was to maintain. You know, and this, by now they would do it under a physician's super uh, supervision, 
But I mean, there. Are, what happens is after you, because you know, your body's amazing. Because you're getting it from an outside source, you know, it doesn't produce it. It's it's on its own anymore. So a lot of times that doesn't kick back in, and you wind up with real low testosterone counts, and that's at a relatively young age. So now you have to be on it for the rest of your life just to have a normal testosterone level. So, you know, that's uh, that was definitely, you know, like I said, that was a deciding factor for me. Oh, that's a great factor. It's a great uh, way of thinking. Now, there's another guy who uh, from that era was a very big star, and he uh, definitely is very vocal and always has been vocal about clean uh, weightlifting, clean uh, living, clean, uh, you know, stance on, on how to go about getting yourself into shape, and that is one, the one and only and another former guest of ours, Bruno San Martino, the living legend. And you and I speaking briefly uh, before we got going on the interview, and you were talking about Bruno's role in your career, but why don't you elaborate more on that and tell us uh, about your connection to Bruno and uh, how he played a part in you getting uh, your start there. Sure. Um, you know, when I was a kid, when I would watch wrestling, of course, Bruno was like, you know, the guy I wanted to em- emulate. And, you know, I mean, I, I I loved watching Bruno. I thought he was the best. And uh, fortunately, I, you know, got lucky and was able to, um, you know, get into the, uh, to the W, back then was called the WWWF. And, uh, you know, I met Bruno there. And um, he was, you know, he had, I guess, had taken a liking to me. And, um, you know, I, I developed a relationship with him. Uh, and then we had uh, Dominic Danucci and a few of the other uh, wrestlers, uh, the Valiant Brothers, and uh, they started an opposition group back in, uh, I guess this was around 1982, 83. And Bruno was the commentator for that. And I got to really know him well then. And, uh, you know, he would give me advice. He'd watch the matches, and he'd say, listen, kid, when you do, you know, do this, be more aggressive, or do that. And he he became like a mentor to, uh, to me. And, um, you know, and I, that, that was awesome. I mean, that's like, you know, being a baseball player and, and getting mentored by Babe Ruth or Joe DiMaggio or somebody like that, you know, and to somebody of that stature to take time and interest in you, you know, that was, to me, I mean, that like, kind of blew my mind. And then um, as things progressed with this new opposition group, um, his son David and I were teamed up, and we tag-teamed for about a year. And uh, I got to know David really well, and, you know, know, and like I said, got to know the family. But uh, like I said, Bruno was really a – he's an awesome guy. I mean, you know, the one thing about him, he's a very black-and-white guy. You're you're never going to – wonder where you stand with him. He, You know, if he likes you, he'll do anything for you. If he doesn't like you, I would stay out of his way. Uh, he, he got me booked He got me booked in Japan. Uh, you know, it, like I said, just a, a real gentleman. And, I mean, to me, he's, he is the Babe Ruth of wrestling. And I don't care. You could talk about Hulk Hogan or John Cena or any of these guys, but none of them could shine Bruno's boots. I mean, Bruno was... I mean, he sold out Madison Square Garden. He's got the record. I don't know how many years or how many matches in a row he sold out Madison Square Garden. And I'll never forget, I was on the card when he was working with Zabisco uh, in the garden, and it was the big big blow-off match that they had. And I'll never forget this. I was standing because I was going out. I guess I was going to be in the next match or the match after. And I was standing by the curtain, 
And any time Bruno got in the ring, I would watch. Not that I didn't watch all the matches, but I would especially pay attention to that. And I can remember standing at the garden, and there's a curtain when you walk out the runway there, and I'm standing there. And, you know, Zabisco's in the ring, and Bruno comes walking out, and all he's got on is black trunks, black boots, no fancy robes, no woo, none of that crap, walking out into the ring. And he had, there was 21,000 people, the garden was sold out, and back then they had the fell form, it was closed circuit TV, 5,000 people down there. And he had 26,000 people in the palm of his hand, and I never forgot that. They were banging their feet and yelling and screaming so much that the building felt like it was vibrating. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. Totally, and nothing fancy, you know, just like, like I said, black trunks, black boots, and he just walked out, and that place erupted. It went nuts. I'll never forget that. Now, there's so much with Bruno. When we were talking to Bruno, I mean, obviously, you know, we kind of did almost, I feel like, a greatest hits of, you know, some of his best moments. I mean, it's so hard to, you know, single out anything because there's so many great things that, you know, we grew up watching him. If you grew up watching him, and we grew up in that next generation after that we was watching Bruno come out of retirement, and we loved it. And he doesn't consider that a comeback because he didn't feel like he did anything. But growing up and watching Bruno, was there one – match or was there one you know specific moment that you really remember that you loved about Bruno and then getting to know him was there one piece of advice that Bruno gave you that you kind of took with you the rest of your career well I, I could tell you the one match that I remember when I was a when I was a fan I was a kid I mean I I, I, I guess I was probably maybe nine or ten years old and my great-grandmother and great-grandfather they loved wrestling and that's all they did they would watch it all the time yell and scream at the TV, and they were huge Bruno fans. And I'll never forget, he was doing an interview, and as he's doing his interview, uh, Eddie Graham comes running out with Jerry Graham, and they attack him. He was supposed to have a match with – oh, no, excuse me. They they didn't attack him. They came out, and Bruno said that he would do 10 push-ups with Eddie Graham sitting on his back. So Bruno gets down, he's got a white shirt on, and he starts doing the push-ups, and, of course, he – bangs out 10 push-ups, which is amazing in itself. And then, of course, the two of them attack him, and they start kicking him and punching him, and they rip his shirt off. Well, you know, he gets up, and they, they take off. And now he's on the mic, and he's almost in tears. And he's talking about how his sister made that shirt for him when they had no money and when they came from Abruzzi, Italy, and, and she, she made this shirt by hand, and they ripped it off him. And, and I was like, wow, this is like... I never forgot that. That, like, was etched in my mind. Um, as far as the advice, I remember I was working, uh, wrestling with, I think it might have been in Allentown or it was somewhere in Pennsylvania. And after my match, he pulled me aside. He goes, listen, he goes, you're, you're, he goes, you're not aggressive enough. He goes, you need, as a baby face, he goes, you're a big, strong guy. He goes, you know, uh, you need to be more aggressive when you're in the ring. And right after that, he gave me that advice. I went in the ring and I was, I was aggressive as hell in every single match, and it changed my whole career. Just, just those few words, uh, you know. Tell, talk, you know, Bruno told me that. You know what? I'm taking it from the master. That's exactly what I'm going to start doing when I'm in the ring, and uh, that's what I did, and that really helped me be, you know, have the success that I did have. You know, one thing that's very interesting about your career, and especially the you know WWF run. That we kind of know you as Rocky, obviously, you know you very well as, as Rocky. 
but what is it with the name Rocky Jones, and how come you were known, you know, at that point in in, in the WWF as Mike Masters? Is there a reason for the name change? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I went down to um, my first match, I, w- I walk in there, like, you know, I was 240 pounds, this big guy, and I had a, like a... Uh, like a laundry bag. I had my stuff in it, and I had it slung on my shoulder. I guess I look like Sailor Art Tom's. And I walk into the arena, because they just called, you know, um, Johnny Rods actually was the one that got me booked, and he says, you know, just be at this place. you know. And back then, like, you know, they didn't give you much information. You had to figure it out for yourself. You'll be here at this time, that's it. You don't know where it is. You have to find it and all that stuff. So I go walking in, and, and I got there early, and they were doing uh, – promos. So I walk in and I see Lou Albano's over there and I see the Grand Wizard and uh, Freddie Blassie and, and uh, you know, all these luminaries in the business at the time. And I, Albano, you know, sees me out of the corner of his eye and he comes walking over and he goes, hey, kid, can I help you? I said, well, yeah, I'm supposed to wrestle here today. He goes, oh, okay, go, go behind the curtain over there. He goes, Gino's back there. I, Gino was Gorilla Monsoon, not that I knew that at the time. So I walk in, and I, I'm stage-struck because here's Gorilla Matsu, Bruno San Martino, Vince McMahon Sr. and Jr. sitting at the monitors and going over, I guess, what they were going to do for the show, the uh, the tapings that night. So they look up at me, and Monsoon looks at me and goes, yeah, kid, what do you need? I said, oh, no, I'm supposed to wrestle here tonight. So he says, now, my real name my real name is Mike Jones. So he says, well, what's your name, kid? I said, well, my name is Mike Jones. He goes, well, we got it, Jones. He goes, he goes, forget that. He goes, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a name. Don't worry about it. Just go outside, put your stuff on, and, and and wait there. Okay. So I go out into the dressing area, and the guys were finishing up with their promos, and they were coming back, and I was introducing myself to everyone. And um, so they they used to do three tapings in Allentown for Channel Nine. So they would put up a piece, just a piece of like yellow lined paper with the batches. It'd be like you know. Uh, and Patera versus Tito Santana, and you know, and they would just have the list. So there's the Iron Sheik versus Mike Masters. So now nobody tells me that that was the name that they gave me was Mike Masters. The Monsoon had given me the name. I had no idea. So I'm sitting there, and here comes the Iron Sheik, and he's running around the locker room. Who's Mike Masters? Who's Mike Masters? And I'm sitting here. I don't know who the hell Mike Masters is. So now he's got to get in the ring, and Mike Masters is supposed to be in the ring. So the Sheik goes out to the ring. And all of a sudden, Monsoon comes storming to the back. He goes, hey, get in the ring. I'm like, oh, I'm Masters. And he goes, get in the ring. Right? So I'm like, oh, Christ, I didn't know, right? So <laughs> I get in the ring, and, and that was Mike Masters. <laughs> so that's where that name came from. The Rocky Jones, actually, when I switched over to – because I worked mostly as a heel when I first started. And then when I had uh, switched over to the, um, to the opposition there, the IWA it was called, um, they wanted me to work babyface, so I came up with a different name. And my my dad was in the, when he was in the army, he boxed a little in the army, so they used to call him Rocky. So I took his name. So Rocky Jones was actually that. I took my dad's uh, name. Oh, very cool! I love that uh, Iron Sheik running around calling for you know white <laughs> masters, and he has no idea who it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, at that era, you know, when you were in the in you know WWF, obviously, you know, you wrestled so many guys. I know uh, we mentioned Nikolai Volkov and Iron Sheik and all these big name stuff, but you wrestled Hulk Hogan kind of before he became the huge megastar. When you wrestled Hogan, did you kind of you know see or foresee him 
being that gigantic megastar? Um, you know, it, it's funny because that's when the business started to change because Vince Sr. had passed on and Junior took over, and he had a different concept. When I first broke into business and, and Sr. ran the business, you know, they, what they, they basically marketed more to ethnic groups. They didn't really market the kids or anything like that. And so at the time, you know, they they didn't really do that much with Hogan. They kind of kept him in the middle. Um, like I said, they didn't they didn't really give him like a big push. I don't think he ever got at that time. I don't think he got a shot at the Garden or anything like that. So I had worked with him. We were in Japan together, him and I. And when we came back to the states, we worked in L.A. I was working at the time in L.A. And uh, usually when he came back from Japan, everybody would stop over in L.A. and work a night or two. And, um, you know, uh, I had a, a really good match with him, like a 27-minute match. And uh, he was still a heel at the time. Um, but then when Junior took over, he got he was, you know, smart because he said, you know what, I'm not marketing to ethnic groups. I'm going to market to the kids because now – you know, if you market to the ethnic group, well, you know, the the, the one guy that, that, you know, the the Spanish guy, the Italian guy, the Japanese, they, they're going to come. They're going to buy one ticket. They're not going to buy the foam fingers. They're not going to buy any of the gimmicks. But market to the kids, now dad's going to bring the kid, and he's going to want to bring his friend. And when they get there, they're going to want to buy the foam finger. And this, So that's when the business started to change, and that's when I saw, I mean, Terry was always, or Hogan was always a very charismatic guy. Um, very, I'll tell you what, he's a very nice guy. He's a very humble guy. He, he never forgets like his roots and stuff. And I know like when he had that TV show, if anybody was down in the area and he knew they were there, he'd try to hook them up and get them on the show, get him a payday. And, you know, I mean, I, and I always got along really well with him, but, uh, you know, um, he had, let's put it this way. He had the charisma to do it, but if it wasn't for the power of the WWF, he would have never been or never made to made it to the level that he did make it to. Um, I mean, they you know they were at one point so powerful that they made a sock into a household name. I remember when um, um, Mankind was Mr. Socko. I yep. mean, oh, yeah. they they made a sock into a household name. So I mean, that was the kind of power <laughs> and clout. So honestly, anybody that had any ability ability at all, if they decided to this was the guy they wanted to push, they were going to get him over and get him over big. And that's what happened with Terry. But uh, actually, I mean, back then, I didn't, I didn't really think he would, I didn't think he would hit the, the heights that he did. But you know what? Good for him. Because like I said, he's, he's a really, he's a nice guy and he's a very humble guy. And like I said, he does he doesn't forget, you know, I mean, like he, he remembers his, you know, he remembers what it was like coming up and, you know, he had a rough time breaking into the business. I mean, he got beat up. They broke his leg. Uh, you know, he had a, he, he didn't have it easy breaking in. He didn't have a connection or anything. I know he was a huge uh, superstar Billy Graham fan, and um, he kind of modeled himself after him, after superstar. But uh, he had a rough, you know, a rough entree into the business as well. So, um, yeah, like I said, I never thought that he would. I, I didn't really think he would hit that height, but, you know, with the power that they wound up having, um, you know, good for him. Definitely, and looking at your career and all the cool tag team partners you had, I mean, we talked about Tito a little bit, teaming up Gorilla Monsoon is awesome, Ivan Pusky, 
What do you think about some of the guys that, that you know, you got the uh, privilege of being paired with in your time in the WWF? Uh, I, you know, I, I felt that I was very fortunate because when I was ha- uh, teaming up with these guys, I was only in the business for a couple months. And all these matches were like semi-main events. And, you know, I was making really good money. Um, of course, I would have to, you know, put the guys over or whatever because what they did was, I, I, I really think this goes back to the way I was built and my size and stuff that, uh, you know, they would team me up. And this is when the Samoans still had the strap and they would team me up with Putski or they would team me up with Santana and we'd have our match and then, you know, I would get beat and then, uh, you know, to set it up for Putski and Santana to get together and then going after them for the belts. Um, so, you know, um, that was, that was you know, that was pretty cool and uh, the Samoans were fantastic. They treated me like, like gold. I mean, they would make me look like a million dollars. You know, I mean, they were they're really terrific guys. Matter of fact, I just saw Afa. We did a um, uh, a charity uh, thing up in Pennsylvania for the uh, Kidney Foundation, and I I hadn't seen Afa in maybe 30 years, and I had a chance to see him. We got to take some pictures together and stuff, and uh, you know, they the two of them just treated me like like gold. You know, I mean, they make they would make me look like a star. Samoans are. Pretty crazy reputation as far as, uh, you know, just being nutty and doing all these crazy things. Were they as crazy away from the camera as they were in front of the camera? Well, I'll tell you what, they were they were a little crazy. I mean, we wrestled one time in North Bergen, New Jersey, and uh, it was this place, Embassy Hall, and North Bergen is kind of a rough neighborhood. and uh, The place served beer and stuff, so, I mean, I, I think I was only in, I, I might have only been in a business about a month or so, and I was teamed up with Zabisco. Larry was still working as a babyface at the time, and I was teamed up with him. So we, we go into the rain. The Samoans had just come in, and they were getting over like gangbusters. And, I mean, they would be outside the ring as goofy as they were in the ring. I mean, they go into supermarkets and stuff and throw melons around and all kind of crazy stuff. So I, I remember we're in, we're, we're in the ring, and they come into the ring while – all of a sudden, here comes this guy running out of the crowd. There wasn't real good security there. And a pretty big, good-sized guy. And he comes running. He tries to get into the ring. Well, it was like these two guys, just like like a, a, a starving dog that sees a, like sees a steak. Their eyes lit up. They ran over. They grabbed this guy by the hair. They pulled him into the ring. And i never seen a beating like this in my life. They got this guy, <laughs> Hayward, kicking him and punching him. And this guy had blood coming out of every orifice on his body. And, you know, finally they throw him out of the ring. And then, then that was great because when we started the match, when Larry Larry and I, tied, all we had to do was touch him, and the crowd erupted. You know, I mean, they, they get into all we that's all we had to do. So, I mean, they made the match real easy for us. But, uh, yeah, they were pretty wild characters on the outside. And I'll tell you what, tough guys, really tough guys. But, uh, once again, if they liked you, they would – they make you look like a superstar. And, um, you know, fortunately, uh, they took a, a shine to me, and uh, they would make me look like, like a star every time I worked with them. You know, I mean, I, I can remember even uh, working with them on TV and stuff, and uh, sometimes they would complain because they were going for the championship and they were giving me too much, you know, uh, on the television show. So um, they were great guys. But, uh, yeah, they were, they were wild, but they were tough. 
such a great era back then. I mean, so many crazy guys and so many crazy characters. But, you know, we mentioned yeah. you you worked for Vince Sr. and for a little bit, and then you obviously worked for Vince Jr. What would you say is the major difference, or, or if there is any difference, between working for Sr. and working for Jr.? Uh, I think G- Jr. was more... He, he was. I have to say, he was probably more business-like. Um, where Senior was, you know, it, it, he he was a businessman, but you know, he didn't have the same vision that Junior had. You know, I I, I know that when um, Senior was around, um, Junior wanted to wrestle. He wanted to be a wrestler, and, and his father forbade it. He would not allow him to do that. And then, obviously, when his dad passed on, you know, he he did get in the ring and become a wrestler. Uh, but yeah, I think Junior, he just had, uh, I would say, a broader vision, and he had the, uh, you know, like when Senior had was in charge, it was kind of a gentleman's agreement that nobody crossed lines. So you know, you had New York territory, then you had Charlotte, and you had Atlanta territory, and Florida, and you know, and territories that went across the country. When Junior took over, he said, look, he goes, there's nothing legally saying that I can't run shows in California or Minneapolis or Texas or Charlotte. I can run a show anywhere I want. And, you know, but uh, Senior would never do that because the promoters back then, they were all these old, good old boys that knew each other forever and they respected boundaries. But when Junior took over, he kind of blew that all out of the water. And, you know, he just took it to a whole other level. He really did. I mean, went international. Obviously, you know, he took the WF to a new stratosphere. It was just crazy what he did with wrestling and everything, and he kind of where it went. But you ended up leaving for you know, obviously you you travel around around the world, different territories. But why did you leave that first time around? And then you made a return. I believe it was in 1988. How did that come about? Um, well, they actually they set me out. Um, senior. Um, had uh, Peter Maivia, uh, open, he was running the territory in Hawaii. So um, it's funny because I was I spoke to Gino um, Gorilla Monsoon. I said, you know, Gino, I'd like to go out, you know, into another territory, you know, kind of learn the business and then come back. So you know, I can you know I can get a push here. So Gino had set me up <clears throat> or in. Uh, Charlotte. He goes, this will be a great place for you to work. He goes, you'll work every night. You'll make some money. He goes, and there's a lot of good workers there. He goes, you're going to learn the business inside and out. But then, I remember I was wrestling, I think it was in Fall River or Providence, and Arnold Scolan was the booking agent there. So he, Arnold's talking to me, and he's like, hey, you know, you he goes, a guy like you, he goes, you'd probably like to be in some warm place, you know, on a beach somewhere. You can work out and, you know, get tan and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, didn't know he was setting me up. And then the next night I come to, uh, it was either Pro- I was either Providence the first night and then Fall River or vice versa. And I come in and he goes, oh, uh, kid, he goes, your old man wants to send you to Hawaii. So I'm like, well, Hawaii, it's like a dream, sure, you know. <laughs> so now I'm talking to Dominic Danucci and Danucci says, don't go, don't go. He says, Gino's got you in Charlotte. He goes, don't go. He said, because if you go to Hawaii, he goes, they're not making any money. They're starving down there. He goes, there's not enough, you know, it's not, the territory is just, it's dead. So now I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I can't tell Vince McMahon Sr. Like, no, I'm not going to go to Hawaii. 
So he said, you know, and they were going to send myself, and they sent uh, uh, actually Jim Duggan, because Jim and I kind of broke in at the same time. So I, I, I'm talking to, to Duggan. I said, what are we going to do? He goes, I, goes, I think we got to go. He goes, you know what? He goes, I talked to Vince already. He goes, he um, he's going to give us round-trip tickets, so if it doesn't work out, you know, we'll be able to get open-end round tickets. You know, if we can't, if we can't make a living there, that, you know, he'll uh, – we'll be able to come back right away. So I said, all right, you know, so, you know, I told Dominic, you know, he goes, oh, you're, you're making a big mistake. And I was like, I don't know. I said, I, I, you know, I know Dominic was right, but on the same token, how do you say no to the boss? If you say no to the boss, that means I'm never going to be able to come back and, and, you know, get a push. So I, uh, myself and Jim Duggan, we had gone down there and I'll tell you what, it was a great experience. You know, did make a lot of money, but a couple times Vince, would send money down for uh, Jim and I. And so we were actually doing pretty well, and the rest of the guys there, were they were starving to death because you only wrestled once or twice a week, and the houses weren't very good. And, uh, you know, but it was a great place for me because I got to work with a lot of guys down there, and I learned a lot. Um, and uh, Jim and I, we roomed together, and he, he's a total he's a total pisser. I mean, like, we had so much fun there. <laughs> And he's a real wild man. I'll tell you, he's a real wild man. But uh, we had such a good time down there. And, uh, you know, like I said, got to uh, meet some people and, and got to learn the business. And, you know, Peter was, um, Peter was a, he was an awesome guy. And, uh, you know, he would take us down to the ring and, you know, he'd work out with us, you know, teach us different things. And, I mean, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was a, a fantastic guy and one of probably the toughest man I think I ever met in my life. He was he was unbelievable, but uh, so that, that's how I wound up going. And then once I went on the road, I, you know, I stayed on the road at that point. I think from Hawaii, I went to then I went down to work for the Fullers down in Florida, and I was down there for a while. And then I uh, got booked out in L.A. and I worked out in L.A. And that's kind of like when I was in Pen- uh, in Florida, they kept me kind of in the middle. And one cool thing was, I, I remember on TV, I was working with Mr. Wrestling 2, who was like a legend down there. And uh, he didn't beat me in a match. They did a run-in. And I'll never forget, because somebody from the office said that Jimmy Carter, who was the president at the time, his mom, was a huge fan of Mr. Wrestling 2. And that she hated me because the, we, we jumped Mr. Wrestling 2 in the ring and beat him up in the ring. So I thought that was pretty cool. The president's <laughs> mother didn't like me too much. Uh, but then, uh, like I said, I had gone out to LA and that's kind of, that's kind of where I got my first break where I, you know, I got the belt, the NWA America's heavyweight championship, uh, belt out there. I wrestled, uh, Victor Rivera, took the belt from him in like a 45 minute match. Like that, they used to do these long, long matches out there. And, uh, but that was kind of, I, I would say it was kind of my first break. Yeah, and you know, and I want to touch back on to uh, Hawaii in, uh, in in just a second. But John had asked about uh, that potential brief comeback in 1988 with uh, with the WWF, and it seemed like you know y- y- you did a couple matches, and it maybe was going to be something that worked out. But there were some other, uh, you know, again with you being more of a level-headed professional wrestler, you let a very important personal decision. Uh, get ahead of a potential run with the uh, the WWF. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that whole scenario? Yeah, back in '88, um, my uh, my wife at the time was pregnant, and um, 
she she uh she was due like you know in a couple of weeks so what happened was um uh, they had i had sent up sent up some information to them and they called right away and they said listen you know we want to bring you in so i said yeah i said okay that's uh you know that that's great I'm, you know that, that's really good news i said but you know my wife is pregnant and she's going to have a baby um you know um and you know, in a couple of weeks, so I, I want to stay around. You know, I want to be around that, around here. So they said, "Yeah, no problem." So I know the first night they had booked me. Now I was I live in New Jersey, and they booked Dunn Arena, which was 20 minutes from my house, and then it was great. And I had a really good match. I worked with Barry Horowitz, and uh, we had a really, really solid, good match. You know, report went back to the office. I think Tony Garia was the agent. So they would the agents what they would do is watch the matches and report back to. Um, to the office about you know how we did, so apparently they were they were happy with what I did. So then they had called me up and said, "Listen, we want you to go up to uh, Syracuse, and um, we uh, you know we're going to fly. It's a, a Saturday afternoon. We'll fly you out. You work Saturday night, and we're going to have have you return Sunday morning." So I was like, "All right, that's the, you know that's that's cool. You know I could do that." And um, you know, so I did that, and, and once again, I worked with uh, Danny Davis, I think, up there. We, once again, we had a really good match, and then they had called me the next week, and they had me booked in 13 towns, but all the towns were out in the Midwest, like out Iowa and Kansas City, and I was like, you know, I, I can't do this because, you know, my wife is going to have the baby, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be halfway across the country when my kid's born. So, I, you know, I wanted to be there for that. And I was there for my first daughter, and, you know, I just didn't think it would be fair to not be there for the second, my, you know, my second daughter. So, you know, I told them, you know, uh, you know, I, I want to be home for that. And they're like, oh, okay, you know. And I said, you know, like, you know like, can I call you back in a couple months? And like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And like, that was the end of that. So it just never um, – you know, it didn't. It just didn't work out. But uh, you know, I mean, if I would have taken the the shots, I you know, I you know, I know I would have probably got somewhat of a push. And, and and you know, the funny thing was, before Senior had passed on California, and I had just won the strap, and I said, you know, I called him up. I said, you know, Vince, I'd like to come back to New York, but I don't want to come back without a spot. I said, I want to come back. He goes. Kid, he goes. I like you a lot. He goes. I just don't have anything right now. He goes, but I do have you in mind. He goes, give me a call back in a few months, maybe six months. Call me back. In the interim, during that six months, that's when he passed away. Um, so that kind of crept that there. But uh, yeah, getting back to that in '88, that was that was what happened. Where you know, I just didn't want to go on the road and not be around for the birth of my child. You know, and at the time, honestly, I had other things going on too, so it wasn't completely devastating you know i was starting a um i was starting a little fitness company and i had a local cable uh fitness uh, exercise show that was doing pretty well it was on in about a million homes in the area and uh, i was carried by several different uh cable stations and you know so things were kind of working out for me in, in, in other ways as well but uh yeah that was kind of it and i never heard back from him until I guess it was about five years ago, and um, Tommy Dreamer, who I know for a long time, uh, had called me and said, look, you know, would you be interested in doing a commercial for us, you know, for uh, SummerSlam? So I was like, yeah, it's, you know, what's the, what's, you know, what's the, what's the deal? So he goes, well, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars, you know. I was like, cool, yeah. I said, I'm, I'm down. 
So that was that was the that was I guess what uh, maybe twenty years in between since working for him that last time and then going back or twenty five years actually and then going back and doing the commercial for him. Well, before we get into the, I definitely want to hit on the commercial without a doubt. But talking about leaving, you know, in the early '80s, coming back there for you know a cup of coffee there in the late '80s, you left still kind of new into the business and you came back definitely more of a grizzled vet. Did you, did you find that that helped, you know, going into that locker room? And I know the generals might have changed a little bit from when you were there the first time, but you still had a monsoon there. You still had an Arnold Skull in there. And now you're coming in with some years under your belt. Do those guys look at you a little bit differently now and treat you differently? Or is it just the same because they're the, uh, the old, you know, the old generals uh, hanging out in the back there and uh, they still rule the roost? Yeah, now I, you know, I, Scolding, you know, things never change with Arnie. Yeah, he was always chomping on that cigar, and you know, he didn't care who you were. He had no idea, like you know, care less. But um, you know, you know, you 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 feel a little more comfortable. But I was still a kid. You know, they would just hey kid, hey kid. You know, so I mean, now things that don't really do, especially like with Arnie. And Arnie was he was a pisser. I mean, I heard the story, and uh, Terry had told me, Hogan had told me the story that. Stallone was trying to get in touch. Now, they used to have a little office at the Holland Hotel in New York. And the only one that was ever there was Arnie. He would go down there during the day. And and, uh, the story that I was told was that Stallone was calling Hogan for weeks, trying to get him to come out for an audition for the Rocky III movie. So, Stallone didn't know who the hell he was. Yeah, some guy. So, finally, he tells Hogan, yeah, some guy, I don't know, Sylvester or something. He's calling you. He wants you to go to California for something. You know, like, like he had no idea who the guy was. And this was after Rocky one and two. He had no idea who he was. So he goes, "Yeah, I don't know who the guy. Is. Some guy Sylvester or something's calling you." So, you know, I mean, like with Arnie, he was, you know, he didn't care. I mean, you know, he had, you know, all. I mean, and all those guys, they they were kind of a clique. You know, it was Skull and Monsoon. You had, uh, you know, uh, Jay Strongbow, and uh, you know, all those old timers and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> He, he, it never changed. I mean, if he was still alive and I was still going into the locker room, I still at, at 62 years old, I'd still be kid, you know, which isn't a bad thing. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Now that's uh, that's really really cool. That's definitely you know that '88 era is when you know uh, John and I are definitely uh, we were starting to uh, get our bearings there, watching and we remember everybody so fondly, and especially Scotland and Monsoon. At that point, where you know they were like WWF icons with those high-end agent spots, but let's go back to the uh, to Hawaii and the Polynesian Pacific pro wrestling. So obviously, you know there was a lot. There's a lot that I feel like is never talked about with that area of the country and what's going on out there. I mean, obviously at that point when you're out there, you know you get Von Erichs are coming through and Piper and David Schultz and even uh, Ricky Steamboat. But why don't we really hear too much about that territory, uh, you know, 30 years later when it really was, I mean, maybe the pay wasn't that great and the Maivias, maybe they didn't run it the, the best at some points, but why don't we ever hear too much about that Pacific, uh, that Polynesian Pacific territory? Well, you know, I mean, because it's so isolated, and back then, you know, you, you didn't have the the TV that was national. The TVs were all regional, so... Basically, your TV that you had was just going to be in, in the island. It wasn't going to be, you know, in California or uh, Oregon or, you know, any place on the West Coast. It was just a local T 
TV. So that obviously didn't help things. Now, at one point, back in the day, uh, I know that I think uh, Jim Blears was, and they used to make, they used to do really, really well. I don't know what happened to the territory because, like I said, when I got there, it was pretty much dead, and the Myvias had just, I guess it was even closed down for a while. I think they just had reopened it and tried to make it work, uh, you know, I guess because being, you know, Samoan and stuff, that they, they thought they would have, uh, you know, the ability to get the island people behind it. But for some reason, it, it just didn't it just didn't take off. Uh, and like you said, whenever, like, we did a real big show at the Blaisdell Arena. I mean, there was everybody... Uh, the Destroyer was there, uh, Victor Rivera was there, uh, Santana was there. Uh, I mean, it was like a who's who uh, of professional wrestling uh, on this card. And, you know, it drew okay. I mean, the arena probably held, I would say, in a neighborhood of 10,000 people. We probably had about half full. There might have been five or 6,000 people there. And, I mean, you couldn't have, you know, a stronger card than what, what was there that night. And even with that, it really didn't draw. Uh, and like, like I said, I, I mean, I don't know about the TV. I don't know about the, you know, the, I'm assuming at some point, you know, like the, the island people were into it. But I'll tell you a, a, a really wild story. Uh, we were wrestling at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii one time. And uh, Ming um, was a young kid at the time. And uh, he had a deal in Japan. He was signed when he was a young kid as a sumo wrestler. And uh, he had to leave the territory for like nine weeks to, to fulfill his contract. So myself, I was a heel, obviously. All the, uh, all the, the, main, you know, the mainlanders, we were Hallies, and we were all heels. And all the island guys were all the baby faces. So obviously, Bing was a baby face. And uh, so Peter says, you got to get in there. you got to rough him up. We want you to you know, grab a chair and break his leg. Okay, well, you know, uh, if you know anything about Samoan people, they, they stick together and, uh, you know, they're tough and they're big and they can be mean. So <laughs> we're in there and we get, we throw him out of the ring and we got him on the floor and we grab a chair and we smack his leg, bang, 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 and he's writhing in pain there, right? Well, these people, and, and I mean, at, at that, we, we probably had, it wasn't a very big arena, but it was probably about half full. Well, they started coming out of the stand, and I'm like, holy snikes, right? These people <laughs> want to kill us. I mean, like, this is insane. So, you know, now, when we were there, Duncan didn't work as Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He was a heel, and they called him the convict, and he would wear a mask. And he was getting letters from the guys at the prison saying, you come up here, we'll kick your ass, and blah, blah, blah all of his stuff, so anyway, I get, I get now Jim, when I have his glasses, he, he doesn't see real well. I get into the locker room, and uh, this guy, Wild Man Pete Austin, who had worked as Pete Austin for Vince way back in the day, and uh, Hiro Sasaki from Japan, he was there, and we, we're in the locker room, and I happened to open the door to see what was going on, and there's Duggan on the ground, and they're kicking the hell out of him. And a couple of the baby faces, they're straddling them, and they're trying to keep the people off because he's got blood coming out of his, his eye. He's got a mascot. It's coming out of the eye holes. It's dripping out from under his chin. And, and I remember the one kid, baby face, he was from Indiana, a Spanish kid. I forget, Jose Martinez. He's 
waving to me to come out and help them. I'm like, oh, no, right? So I go running out, right? I try to get Jim up, and I'm kind of like, I got him half on my shoulder, and I'm kind of hopping through the crowd, and people are throwing chairs at us and everything else. And uh, finally got back into the locker room. And the funny thing is, that day, Jim and I were at Waikiki, and we had met a couple girls on the beach, and they they saw us, and they're like, oh, you guys are, you know, what are you, football players? I'm like, no, you know, we're pro wrestlers. And they're like, oh, the pro wrestling, you know, that's, not, that's all fake, isn't it? And I was like, well, why don't you come to the matches tonight, and, you know, we'll show you what we do. So they had picked us up, and they drove us to the, to the matches. Well, they were hysterical. They were out in the car. And they're waiting with the, with the engine running, and they're crying like uncontrollably. <laughs> we come running now. Fortunately, the only thing I got gaffed in the back by, I guess, by a razor or something. So I had a little gash in the back. But Jim's face was a mess. His nose was busting. His teeth were chipped. He was bleeding all over the place. We dive in the car. Let's go. Take off. And I remember we're driving down his road, and they hadn't they didn't say a word. They didn't turn around. They're driving, but I could see they're trembling. And and the girl finally turns around and she looks and she goes. We thought this stuff was fake. So I dug it and I just like started sort of cracking up. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was some wild times. But uh, yeah, like getting back to the original question, I don't know why it wasn't drawing. I mean, you know, we had some really really good workers there. Uh, you know, Peter uh, uh, Peter worked and Victor Rivera would come in a lot and uh, the Samoans would be in and uh, you know, I mean, we had a, a, a really good crew. But for some reason, it just didn't take off. So I'm assuming that it was pretty easy to get some heat as a heel. Uh, as an American working in a uh, dominated Polynesian uh, market like uh, Hawaii then. Oh, yeah, real easy. Real easy. You didn't have to work too hard. <laughs> and obviously, you know, going from place to place, and, you know, you'd hit some other spots where I'm sure you use that to your advantage as well. And I think one of the most famous uh, you know, feuds or matches that you ever had was the hair versus mask match against Mill Mascaris. So now another, yet another legend to put under that belt of yours, another notch in the belt. But Mill Mascaris, you know, I've always kind of having a reputation of protecting the Mill Mascaris legend, even to this day where he still wrestles and he refuses to leave his feet. Uh, what was it like working with Mill Mascaris? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, at the uh, the end of the day, I know that there was a haircut uh, involved for one of the two of you. Yeah, well, it was uh, the whole setup to the match was uh, I was the champion, I think, at the time. And first they sent his brother in, Das Karos, and I break supposedly break his leg in the match. And now Mill comes in to avenge his brother. Now, Mike LaBelle, who was the promoter out there, now I have pretty long hair at the time, and Mike LaBelle had called me in the office and said, listen, um, would you do a hair match with Mill Moscaris? It'll be the main event, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, well, yeah, you know, he goes, so I will pay you X amount of dollars. I said, for that amount of money, you can shave my ass on TV. I don't care. So <laughs> we kind of had the agreement that, uh, you know, I was going to do the hair thing, so I was fully expecting it. And, you know, I mean, I didn't care. I knew it was going to grow back and stuff, but... Uh, yeah, so then uh, we we had the match and we set the match up and it was it was cool because they used to they we were broadcast on Channel Forty One, which is the international Spanish network, and then we were also televised on local uh, 
TV in, in L.A., which was Channel 34. So they had two announcers. They had this, uh, Jorge Mena was one, and then uh, Jeff Walt was the, the guy for the uh, uh, States TV, and Jorge Mena was the uh, announcer for uh, Channel 41. So they had Jorge Mena do the uh, the setup for this. And so they were interviewing me, and, you know, I, I get up there, and they're like, uh, you know, Mill Maskers is here. He wants the revenge for his brother and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, all right. I said, I'll do this match on one condition. And that is when I beat this greaseball, I want to take his mask off and show everybody how ugly he is. So <laughs> they translate to mascaris in Spanish. And, and um, he agrees. He shakes his head. And then he starts talking in Spanish to Jorge Mena. And uh, so he says, okay, you know, Mill Maskeris agrees to the match. Will you sign the contract? So, yeah, I signed it. So I signed the contract. He signs the contract. And then he says, do you know what you just signed? And I'm like, yeah, I just signed the contract to, you know, beat the heck out of this guy. He goes, yes, but if you lose the match, you're going to have your head shaved on international TV. And then, of course, I go berserk. Oh, I didn't sign for that. I didn't do that. You know, <laughs> So, you know, jumping all around the ring and, and uh, you know, so then, you know, we, we – I think we sold the place out. You know, it was it got over really, really big. And, um, you know, it was, yeah, he wasn't easy to work with because he didn't like to sell. I mean, he, you know, he, you know, it was re- it was very difficult to work with him. Uh, but, I mean, we had a good match. I mean, at the end, you know, the audience popped. I mean, we got a, a huge pop. And, uh, you know, he did a signature, you know, off the top rope. He hits me with the flying body press, one, two, three, kick out, you know, and, I get up and I start to get out of the ring and then they grab me, a couple of the wrestlers, and they hold me down and, and they had a barber that wasn't smart to the business. He he comes in and um, he starts shaving my head and they got the camera right in my face. So I'm like, I'm going to kill you, I'm telling the guy, right? Well, now I'm watching the guy. He's got this buzzer and his hand shaking. And I'm like, this guy's going to cut my freaking ear off. So I'm like, hey, amigo, calm down. It's all cool. It's all cool. Don't worry. He goes, don't, don't worry. I, say, I I come back in the locker room. I fix all for you. I make it nice for you. I'm like, that's good. That's good. Just calm down. <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to lose an ear. <laughs> Pretty awesome to be in a match versus air match, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I worked with Kowalski. I was able to keep my ear working with him, so I didn't want to lose it in this match. <laughs> Pretty awesome to you know to be involved in a match with Mill Masters. Obviously, in a hair versus mask match is really cool. But one thing that I thought was really cool about your career, and we touched on it briefly, was the time you spent in Japan. Because man, when you were over there, you wrestled a who's who. I mean, we mentioned Hogan and Stan Hansen, but I mean the Japanese guys that you wrestled yeah. with, like the who's who. Did you like yep. working in New Japan Pro Wrestling and that style against those kind of guys? Yeah, actually, I mean, I really did like work in New Japan. I got a chance to work with Anoki, which, you know, I mean, he's a legend. Like, he's probably like Bruno over there. And I had a chance to, to work with him in Kariki and Hall. And I worked with uh, Tiger Mask. I, myself and Chris Adams worked with Tiger Mask. And I forget who was part. Oh, Fujinami was his partner. And uh, in a tag match over there. Uh, and got to work with Sakaguchi. A lot of their top guys I had an opportunity to work with over there. And it was really cool. It was very fast-paced, much different than what we wrestled here. And I remember, you know, we would do seven, eight-minute matches over there. And, uh, you know, 
you'd blow up in seven or eight minutes because it was nonstop. They, you know, you couldn't sit in the hole. If you grabbed the hole right away, the referee, move, move, move. They didn't want you sitting still for a minute, you know. So there was no, you know, kind of rest periods, let's say. Uh, it was constant motion. But I really did enjoy the style. It was it was a lot of fun. And uh, the people over there, it was really weird because back then, you know, like nobody would make any noise during a match. They thought it was being disrespectful. So you'd have 10,000 people at, say, Carrickian Hall, and it was like you were in a morgue when you were wrestling. And, you know, hmm. as a wrestler, you you get, you know, your adrenaline goes from, like, with the crowd. When you hear the crowd, they start chanting your name, and, you know, it gets you pumped up, and it really gets you going, where, uh, you know, over there, they don't make any noise. Because all the seats are full, but they're just real quiet, because they felt it was disrespectful back then. I don't know how it is today, but they felt it was disrespectful to, to make noise during a match. So that was interesting. And, uh, like I said, you know, I was really, it was really cool to have, you know, Anoki, you know, he had previously to that had wrestled, uh, or had the, the wrestle, wrestle versus, uh, boxer when he, you know, fought Muhammad Ali. So I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. I'm wrestling this guy who, you know, him and Ali had 50,000 people at Chase Stadium, you know, and I, I have an opportunity to, to wrestle this guy, which was really cool. And, uh, you know, Fujinami was a really, really good wrestler. Uh, I thought he was, you know, excellent. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, I worked for them, and I also worked for Baba when, uh, on another tour over there. And uh, that was a diff- That was a much slower pace, slower style. And uh, I, I remember working with Baba, and it was so weird because he was, like, seven foot tall, but he – I don't think he weighed more than 250 pounds, and he had this big, huge rib cage, and it was like you put a—I put a bear hug on him. It was like kind of bear hugging a skeleton, because huh. you know, because he was so thin and tall. But uh, it was a much different style. Yeah, the older pan is a little bit slower, a little bit stiffer. Did you prefer the older pan style, or did you like this kind of the fast-paced New Japan style? I—I—I I, I, at the time I preferred the New Japan style. Uh, I thought it was more exciting, you know. Uh, it was uh, a lot more action. I, I felt, you know, especially uh, you know for the spectators and stuff. Uh, like I said, with the old Japan, it was a little slower. I remember <laughs> funny story working in old Japan. Myself and Ray Hernandez, Hercules Hernandez, we were teamed up, and I used to use this Samoan backdrop for a finish. So they, the first, uh, first or second night we were there, we're working with two local guys. So you know, I did the finish and I book the guy, and I do the, the backdrop and pen him, and that's it, right? So the next night, you know, we're working with two other guys, and Ray says to me, he goes, hey, Rocky, he goes, hey, can I use the, uh, can I can I use that finish that you used last night? I'm like, yeah, sure. I said, you know how to do it. And he was green in the business. He had only been working about a year. Uh, I said, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, it's, uh, I showed him what to do, and, you know, so we go into the match, and he gets the guy, he hooks him, and he gets him up there, and boom, he but what he did was, he instead of hooking the guy's arm, he hooked the guy behind the back of his neck. And his so when he went down, the back of Ray's head, like, blasted the guy's face and broke the guy's nose, right? So I said, oh, this is not, this, this is, I'm sure this isn't good. And uh, about a week later, we're wrestling the same two guys, and Ray was in the ring, and they're working him over, and the guy grabs Ray by the hair and punches him right in the nose. He goes, oh, Rosito. Boom! And pops his nose right there. <laughs> so I say, yeah, see what happened? I said, hey, you got a receipt, brother. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> but it was really, I mean, you know, it was really cool. Every time I went to Japan, it was, the, the people were great. They're very gracious people. Uh, they love to take your picture. They want you to sign their clothes, uh, you know, every place you go. I mean, we were like, we were real celebrities there. I mean, I can remember we were staying at the Keo Plaza when I was working in New Japan, and the NBA All-Stars were there at the same time. And I remember, like, they were in the lobby. We were coming back from a match, and they were in the lobby, and they were surrounded by a bunch of, you know, the uh, the people, the, the Japanese people there. And uh, as soon as we walked in, they turned around and like, oh, pro rest, pro rest. And they all just left the, the basketball players and flocked to us. And I remember it was funny because Elvin Hayes, who was a, you know, some great basketball player, he was, he was like, he goes, hey, man, that's the wrestlers over there. That's the wrestlers, you know. So, uh, you know, we were, we were big, we were big time in Japan. We were big time. It was, you know, I would say next to Sumo, we were the biggest thing over here. And think about not only the who's who in New Japan, the who's who guys you wrestled in all Japan. I mean, we talked about Giant Baba, but Omita, yep. who's a legend, Misawa, who might yep. be the greatest of all time in the ring, Jumbo, yep. Saruta was awesome, Tenryu. Jumbo Saruta, yeah. Yeah. Did you like yeah, I did remember, you like working those guys in that style? Because they were you know, super stiff. Well, you know what? I uh I, I enjoyed working yeah, I, I, I honestly I always work stiff. You know, I mean to me that you know, especially if you're a bigger guy, that if you if you work loose it just doesn't look good. You know, it's it's just I always work I always work stiff, you know. And uh but uh I remember working with Onita. We had a really, really good match. Uh, he was a hell, he's a hell of a worker. He really is, and uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed the match with him. Um, but uh, you know, I was I was I mean that's the way I was kind of trained to work stiff. You know, I was always told that you know you you you, you know you, you don't you don't cinch you know you don't cinch it up. But I mean, you want the guy to feel it. You know what I mean? Like so, he has to know because I mean, and only and it makes sense. And now I like to get the same thing back because it makes it easier to sell. You know, if a guy's barely touching me, I have a hard time getting that getting that over. But if the guy's got a, the hole on me, it's 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 legit. And uh, I, I can remember one time that this wasn't in Japan. This was over here. And uh, uh, the Savoldis, uh, Angelo and Mario Savoldi, they used to do a big picnic for a congressman in uh, New Jersey. Uh, and so they were going to put a ring up. They used to do this big, like, picnic. It was out in the park, and they, they were going to put a ring up, and they asked myself and uh, Jerry Fazio, who works as he, – he worked as the executioner, and he, they asked us to uh, – if we would come and, and work, you know, do them a favor and, and have a match there. So, you know, the match was in the middle of the park, of the park and people were standing right around the apron of the ring. And uh, – you know, so, you know, I said, you know, we got to be stiff here. And he's like, yeah, I know, brother. He goes, well, you know, they're right there. So we went and we worked a match. And the people that were there, and most of them weren't really wrestling fans. They were just regular, you know, people that were curious. And uh, to to get them to to believe what we were doing, after the match, people were coming up to us, oh, my God, we thought this stuff was fake. We didn't think this stuff was real. You guys, were re- you you really fought. You know, so I was, you know, happy that got that kind of response. But that's also in Japan, because when you're in Japan, all the photographers are all right, right around ringside. They're right on the apron. So you can't really go in there and work 
uh, loose because it'll be so transparent, you know. And you got these photographers taking pictures. I got some some of the greatest shots that uh, you know I've ever uh, collected was from the Tokyo Press. That uh, you know because they're right on the apron. So you you really have to work stiff there. You can't work loose there. And that's uh, yeah, and that's the that's the best way to see those Japanese matches is the stiffer the better. Because it adds to that, like we said, the atmosphere and the respectfulness of the fans because it takes you like, wow, how much harder can you hit somebody for these people to still remain so respectful? And I think they've become a little bit more uh, lively the last couple of years, and they, they've been a little bit more inclined to uh, adapt the sports entertainment feel to it. But as we kind of fast forward yeah. here, uh, and we, you know, we get a little bit into the uh, to the '90s, and you start to become more of a part-time performer. And you, like you said, you had some other ventures uh, that you were exploring, but you got to perform on that awesome, as John and I love to talk about, that New Jersey indie scene of the 1990s. And you got to see some guys that were starting to come up, and they would end up becoming uh, an extreme revolution at some point. But you. We're there for the early days of the career of Little Guido, uh, early days in the career of Tommy Dreamer, and even the Tasmaniac, uh, Taz, floating around at that point. Seeing those guys coming up in the business and seeing what they became with ECW, uh, is it kind of hard to believe? when I mean, They were really uh, you know, fresh-faced little kids when you first found them or first wrestled with them, uh, but did you ever think that they would extremely uh, revolutionize the business? Well, you know, I mean, um, James... Um Nunzio or Little Guido, I knew the first time I got him in a ring, because I trained him, I knew the first time I got him in a ring that this kid had it. I mean, he was, he, he, he I mean, I'd never seen a guy after one training session be able to do what he did. He was a natural, you know, and you know, I mean, it's just a shame he wasn't a little bigger, uh, but he was, he's a natural. I mean, he had a good background. He was an amateur wrestler and stuff like that, so he did have a good background as well. Uh, but he was, uh, you know, he was excellent. Uh, you know, Tommy, you know, Tommy has a different style. Uh, you know, I never, honestly, I didn't know that he would make it to where he did make it. But I think a lot had to do with the style that he wound up, uh, you know, adopting. Uh, so it, it, that worked for him. But on a just a pure talent base, uh, you know, uh, Nunzio or... You know, he was one of the most talented guys, you know, that I, that I ever trained. And I trained a lot of different guys, but he was definitely the most talented guy I ever trained. He was uh, he was almost like a savant. I mean, you know, he took to it like, like a you – know, but he was a hardcore fan as well. So, you know, I have a feeling that he was practicing a lot of this stuff, maybe in his garage or something like that. You know, I don't know. But, you know, he, uh, he picked it up right away. And he was, like I said, you know, to this day, as a matter of fact, I'm working. We have a, a show coming up on November 18th in Lafayette, New Jersey, at the middle school there, and uh, I'll be working with him. It's going to be myself and uh, the executioner in a tag team match uh, against uh, Nunzio or Guido and Kodiak Bear. So uh, that's coming up on November 18th, and I and I, I enjoy working with Nunzio because he. We kind of have a, a very similar style, I think. Uh, a lot of people have commented on that, that we kind of, in a, you know, I, I guess, obviously I trained him, so he, he picked up a lot of, you know, uh, uh, the things that I did at the ring. 
and I think that we have a, a similar style. But uh, yeah, he was uh, he was it was it was great. He's a great kid, and he's not a kid anymore, you know. But uh, you know, he was I think he was their cruiserweight champ a couple times, and you know, I mean, it's just a shame he didn't get more of a push because he's that talented. I, he really deserved it, and I think he could have, you know, really really gone far if they would have you know gave gave him that push uh because he had he has you know he has it all he's got the the attitude the personality uh you know the obviously the athletic ability you know he really is uh you know and ecw i i could have worked there because i know paul Heyman since he was 19 years old i mean i remember he was like a i guess he used to take pictures for one of the magazines and stuff and he had asked me, and I was working with this little another group at the time, and I just won their their heavyweight championship. And uh, so he, you know, he asked me, he was, you know, come to New York because I want to bring you to the limelight at the time. Now I get, it's called Webster Hall. And uh, he goes, you know, I want to take pictures of there. And uh, this there was a disco singer there that was introducing a new album and all this stuff. And you know, and he was, you know, just he was just. The guy, you know, hanging around a business, wasn't, you know, anything special, just young kid that wanted to be in the business. And, uh, you know, so I know, like I said, so I know Paul since he was, you know, 19 years old. When he started ECW, he had talked to me and, uh, you know, and I, and I didn't have too much interest. I mean, I, I didn't know what it, honestly, if I would have known what it was going to be, I would have definitely, you know, went for it. But I just, I didn't think that, you know, it was ever going to be that big or get over that that well. I definitely see a uh, a spot for you in the uh, the FBI because when you look at a guy like Tracy Smothers and a guy like Tommy Rich inside the FBI, you kind of <laughs> shake your head and say, "Well, I think that Rocky <laughs> Jones could have filled that FBI role pretty uh, pretty damn spiffy, if you ask me." <laughs> yeah, I don't think yeah, a couple of good old boys. And, they're not the FBI, man. <laughs> yeah, even J.T. Smith, yeah, Guido did good by uh, recruiting, you know, some of those non-FBI uh, guys. If, I guess that's a part of the uh, the gag. But was there ever any opportunity for Guido to recruit you to join the FBI? Well, I mean, we had talked about it a couple times, but by that time, uh, you know, I was past, let's, let's say I was past my prime, so... You know, I mean, at, at at that at that juncture of my life, you know, I don't know if I could have or if I would have wanted to work, you know, seven days a week or six days a week, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we talked about it, uh, but, you know, I just, like I said, at that point in my, in my life, you know, as you start to get, you know, up in your 40s, and at that point I was actually, you know, at my late 40s, almost 50, uh, you know, it just uh, it would it'd be too much of a strain to uh, to take that beating every you know night after night after night after night. It's a, I mean, it is a young man's you know business if you want to perform at a high level. I mean, one of the things that bothers me is you know when I get in a ring, I'm going to give you a hundred percent. I'm not going to lay around. I'm not going to be a dog because my ego won't allow me to do that. If I'm just doing stuff for a payday, you know. I can't do that. And, you know, I, I really have issue with guys that, you know, at one point had big names and they came and bent over to tie their shoes. You know, I mean, and they, they'll get in a ring for 10 seconds. they got to be in a tag match. All they can do is barely get to the ropes, do the finish, and that's all they can do. And they're living off 
you know, what they were 30 years ago or, or, you know, whatever. So, I mean, if I can't go in and compete at the highest of level and not embarrass myself, then that's the day I stop getting in the ring. Fortunately, you know, I can still do that. I can get in the ring with a, with a Guido and, and go full steam and, you know, go for as long as we need to go and, and do everything that we need to do, you know, um, and, you know, that's, that, that's, to me, that's what the people are paying to see. Not to see some guy that had a name 30 years ago and gets in the ring, you know, and, and has to wear a T-shirt because he's got boobs bigger than most of the women out there and he's, you know, can barely move. You know, I mean, that's, you know, and when I, whenever I'm involved in a show, like, like I'm book, I actually book this show that we have coming up, and I won't use guys like that. I don't care what their name is because, honestly, you know, when you go to these smaller shows, it's mostly kids. So they have no idea who these guys were 30 years ago. And what are they going to sell? Maybe five tickets? You know, I mean, and then my opinion is if you go to a show and you're watching young guys that go out there and they're killing themselves because they, they want to get over, they want to move on, they want to get to the next level, and you're going to leave that show and say, wow, that was really good. I can't wait till they come back. But if I put, if you have a bunch of these old guys, these dinosaurs that, can't even move, you know, you're going to leave that place and say, wow, that stunk. I mean, yeah, I got to see this guy, but the matches were terrible. I mean, you know, I'm not going back. I'm not going to spend $25 or whatever the tickets are to go back and see this. It was terrible, you know, so that's kind of that's kind of my own pet peeve, but, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, at some point, if you can't get in a ring and compete at a high level, then pack it in, you know what, because you're only, you're only, you know, cheating the fans. Definitely have a very, very good point there. And as we start to hit the wind down here, your career, obviously, is so fascinating because you were in the WWF to wrestle with all those big-time names. I mean, the Hogan's, uh, Bruno, which your mentor. I mean, it's crazy. Then we're talking about wrestling Bill Masters. Then we talked about your time in Japan. We, you know, we barely mentioned you worked with Rockets in Mid-Atlantic. You worked in Georgia. You worked in USWA. You worked in Pacific Northwest. I mean, you worked literally everywhere. So you, you're the perfect person for this question. Do you have a favorite match or maybe a couple favorite matches in your career? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, let's see. In uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, we I had a really good match with uh, – I was a heel out there. And I had a really good match in Eugene with uh, Matt Bourne. And, uh, you know, out there, uh, Don Owens, the promoter, he used to like to have guys that were big and muscular use the full Nelson. Now, before I was there, he had Jimmy Snuka, and Jimmy would use the full Nelson as his finish. And then after him, it was um, uh, Jesse, you know, Ventura. He used it. And then I came in, and I used it after me. Billy Jack used it. And uh, we had this match, and we started a riot in the place. It was crazy. These people were going, because after I, I put the full Nelson on, born, you know, I keep it on, and, I'm, of course, I'm going to get disqualified, but I don't care because I want to break his neck. And I'm, I'm banging his head into the ring and just slamming him all over the place, and these people start going crazy and are running into the, running up to the ring. And, uh, so Stan Stasiak and Buddy Rose were on the apron of the ring. They were kind of we were called the Army, Buddy Rose's Army. So whenever one of us wrestled, the other two would be outside the ring. And I remember that uh, Stan was standing up, and Stan was a big man. He was like six foot six, and you know, and he, he was actually a, a Golden Glove uh, champion in Canada. 
and somebody hooks his ankle and pulls him down and pulls him out of the ring and Stan went berserk. And, but we had a security, all these guys that were young rodeo riders, and they were just knocking people out left and right. They were having a good old time. You know? But that match was great. We, we got that over like a million dollars, and we came back the next week. We sold that, and that Eugene was a dog. We never sold it out because uh, Elton Owens, who was Don's brother, you know, he never wanted to get too much heat. He was afraid of lawsuits. Well, he was on vacation, and Don took over, and Don was a – he was a pisser. He goes, we're going to get this damn town off its ass. So he goes, Masters, you're going to get in there, and you're going to do that. I'm like, okay, man. And we sold the place out the next week. And Elton, wasn't, he wasn't happy about the sellout. He was, oh, you're going to get me sued over here. You know, it's like, <laughs> you sold the arena out. What are you worried about a lawsuit for? You know? But, uh, yeah, that was one of my my favorite matches. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, – I had a, some really good matches with Larry Zabisco when we worked in the IWA and I actually took the belt from him for the IWA heavyweight championship. And Larry was always phenomenal to work. He's, he's, he was terrific. He had the psychology, the athletic ability. I mean, he was, he's an excellent wrestler and, you know, having a chance And it. The match that I, I had with Victor Rivera in California for 45 minutes. And uh, I wanted to, when I got the strap out there. So I would say those three come to mind uh, first and foremost. Quite a list of uh, pretty damn good guys there in Zabisco, who we we talked about. Obviously, you guys had the Bruno connection as well, which is which is pretty cool. Yep. So, do you have any kind of maybe a guy that you wouldn't think of where you just had great chemistry, like a favorite opponent, but almost kind of an under the radar guy, a guy maybe that we wouldn't be not that we wouldn't be too familiar with, but maybe somebody we would be surprised that you had such good chemistry with. Uh, well, I always had really good matches with uh, the, ex- the executioner. Always had good matches with him. Matter of fact, we worked up in Toronto, and uh, we worked for uh, uh, Dave McKigney. They used to call him the Bear Man, and he used to every summer bring in a, you know a lot of guys. We worked on a card that was George Steele, Johnny Valiant, uh, Whipper Watts. I mean, he always had you know the Wolf Man, and uh, so we were pretty young at the time, and Jerry and I would always be in the first match. And oh, the, the old the sheep from Detroit, the uh, the original sheep. And uh, we were working first match, and we would do you know a ten minute Broadway, or I'd go over at the end, and and um, you know, and we weren't allowed to go out of the ring. We couldn't do anything you know off the top rope. Just stay in the ring and wrestle. And we were getting over every night, and you know, and a lot of the boys were like, saying, "You know what? We can't follow you two. You know, we we really can't. We can't follow you guys." And these are the main eventers, and we were just doing the opening match, and uh, we would get the crowd. You know, we would get them going. And Jerry and I have always had great chemistry. Uh, had like I said, had really. Had, I loved working with him. Uh, uh, another guy that I had some really nice matches with was this kid, Scotty Charisma. Uh, had. Really, really good match with him. It, it was actually a, kind of a babyface match. Uh, Brad Armstrong, I mean, he's not an under-the-radar guy. He's, you know, I mean, everybody knows him. Had a phenomenal match with, phenomenal matches with Brad in the South. Uh, I had one, he had one of his first matches with me, actually, down in Florida. And then we had, actually, when he was the uh, North American champion at uh, TBS, uh, we had a phenomenal match on TV. Uh, he was another guy that I really... You know, it just it, our styles for some reason just clicked, and you know it. It was great, you know, it really was, and it was 
fun, and it, it was, you know, when you came out of the ring and you were euphoric about the match. You know, I mean, that's the one thing that people don't get is that if you have a if you have a, a bad match, that stays with you. It's like, you know, you don't stop thinking about it. But when you have a really good match, I mean, you're like, on, you're, you're on cloud nine. You're euphoric when you have a good match, it, you know. And, you know, you can just feel it. Like, everything just clicks. And uh, it's a pretty cool feeling. Yeah, that's uh, that's so awesome. And of course, you would not be the first to mention Brad Armstrong. I mean, I I wish I could name off the top of my head. It's got to be at least nine or ten deep now, and people who mentioned Brad Armstrong uh, when answering that question. And that's uh, that is really awesome. That that's so consistent. <laughs> but uh, you know, when we think about what you're doing today, why don't you tell us what you're up to? You know, kind of doing the wrestling thing part time still. Uh, you look yep. fantastic. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing uh, these days. And uh, basically, you know, why don't you tell us uh, where the fans and the listeners to Man Power Trip can find out anything there is for the one and only Rocky Jones as well. Well, like I said, we have a, I have a match coming up on November 18th, and that's in Lafayette, New Jersey. It's uh, at, the, at the middle school, which is 178 Beaver Run Road. Uh, all time is 8 o'clock. It's a Friday night. It's actually the Friday night before Thanksgiving. Uh, doing that, and uh, I'm a personal trainer, so you know I, I work with uh, with people in one-on-one situations, helping them get into shape. Uh, I still am a competitive powerlifter. Uh, I compete in competitions all the time. Now, I mean, I compete in my age and weight group, and uh, a few years ago, I won the world championships in my age and weight group. Uh, and right now, I'm part of a project that is. It's going to be huge. Uh, it's called Giants Under the Sea, and I have two partners, that, and uh, we're partnered up with Nat Geo, and it's going to be this immersive experience where you're going to go into this. It's huge. It's 60,000 square feet. You're going to feel like you're under the ocean. I mean, and it's all with holograms and stuff. And, I mean, you know, it's um, – if, if people aren't familiar with holograms, it's like 3D, but you don't need glasses. And you could swear, like, you could touch these things. So you're going to see manatees going by you, and you think you can actually touch it. And uh, we're presently just, we just took uh, occupancy of the building. So right now we're starting our demo, and uh, we're going to start building all our sets and stuff. And we're slated to open uh, August, probably, uh, the date is August 14th, somewhere around there. And it's right in the heart of New York City Times Square. We're right on 44th Street, right and Schubert Alley, right across from, uh, you know, all the, the, the playhouses and stuff like that. Fantastic location. And uh, it's going to be great for kids, school kids, uh, everybody. But it's going to be interactive so uh, kids can learn and, uh, you know, school trips and stuff like that. Uh, good for corporations. I mean, it's basically, it's going to be, it's going to be mind-blowing. And it's going to be, you know, obviously it's going to be heavily advertised and, you know, you're going to, hear about this project and it's called Giants Under the Sea and uh, like I said we're slated to open so currently I'm working uh, on that project with uh, SPE partners and uh, you know so I'm really looking forward to the grand opening for that and uh, you know and we're gonna, there's plans you know for to possibly expand and stuff like that so it's going to be it's going to be a hell of a ride and uh, it's kind of cool because I thought at this point in my life I'm starting to slow down but it seems like things are ramping up and uh you know it's getting me excited so uh you know hopefully uh you know 
20 years from now, you'll call me back and you want to interview me again. <laughs> oh, definitely. Well, that sounds awesome. That's uh, definitely something to look forward to. Great tourist attraction, another great tourist attraction for beautiful Times Square. But Rocky, this has been so much fun. I know I can't put it into words. Uh, it's been a great walk down memory lane, and I, you know, really appreciate the time. John, I know he does as well, but, you know, we uh, we would love to uh, catch up down the road and, uh, yeah, maybe definitely talk about that huge project when it's ready to uh, to get rolling. That would be great. Awesome. That's where I'll cut it, but, Rocky, thank you so much. This has been a, really a lot of fun. I hope we didn't take up too much of your time tonight. But, uh, Guys. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.